chapter 8. Picking up where we left off a few months back in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, reading verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of God. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, His leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you. As you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Imagine yourself, kids, living about 2,000 years ago near Antioch. That's where some of the earthquakes hit, just north of Israel there in Syria. And you're gathered with other Jewish Christians in a small house church gathering. And you have a man there who's a pastor who maybe is in his 70s, who perhaps was converted by the grace of God during one of the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. Imagine that you're there and you invite some other fellow kind of neighbors that you live by to come and to hear God's word and to worship God that day. And they're not believers. And they maybe haven't ever heard of who Jesus is. And you're opening up the Gospel of Matthew. And you're going to tell them, the pastor there, and you're going to follow up with them after, about who this Jesus Christ really is. What would you say to them? Just yesterday, I had a very brief conversation in an airport with someone who is Jewish, who attends a synagogue, who's very interested in other religions, And I asked this person, have you read the New Testament? They said they hadn't. So it's a very brief conversation in an airport. I said, well, I encourage you to read the New Testament and see who Jesus is. That's what we are doing in our series in Matthew. And what we have 
found and will continue to find going forward is that Jesus is a man with authority, the God-man, God in the flesh, and compassion. That's an amazing combination. In all his perfection, he is powerful and he is gracious. He is loving and he is holy. And we find today that Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Savior, the King of the Jews, performs two different miracles to show this authority and this compassion. Teaching us that he has come to reverse the curse, to undo what Adam did, and to establish that he is God in the flesh. How do we respond to Christ today? Let's look first at the cleansing by Christ. Children, if you were coming back from a vacation like we just did, you go into your house and what are you going to find? Well, this time of year you might find things are really cold. Maybe you'll find in the back of your refrigerator something that you should not have left there. And it's not going to be good to eat after you've been gone for a week. And you're kind of repulsed by it and you've got to just throw it out because you're going to get sick by it. What are things that you have been repulsed by in your life? Maybe a skunk that you smell as you drive down the road or the skunk sprays your dog and the dog now is going to be an absolute disaster for however long. Well, in Jesus' day, there was something that was even more repulsive. A man in this chapter who is what is called an untouchable. He has leprosy. He's living as a walking corpse. Leprosy has afflicted humans for over 4,000 years. Today it still exists. There are thousands of cases still year by year. It's now called Hansen's disease. It affects your skin and your nerves. It destroys your ability to feel. So if someone has leprosy, they would at times perhaps stick their hand into a fire to pull out a potato that had fallen in, and they wouldn't feel it. Or they'd be working all day, and there'd be a nail in the shovel that's digging into their arm or their hand, and they wouldn't recognize it. Or a rat would chew off their finger at night, kids, and they wouldn't know it. In the Old Testament, do you remember leprosy? Moses had leprosy for one verse in Exodus 4. Miriam had it, his sister, and God healed her. Naaman the Syrian, Elisha's servant Gehazi. There was no cure for leprosy in biblical times. It's very contagious, it's fatal often, and lepers were quarantined. That means they lived in separate communities, and people know what that word means more now than almost ever before the last few years. There were laws in the Old Testament relating to leprosy. Leviticus 13 and 14, we're not going to read through all of it. (laughs) It's a long list. But a person would be diagnosed by the priest. And if it was really bad, they would be mourning with clothes and their head hanging loose, their clothes torn, and they would cry out, unclean, unclean, as they approached anyone who was around them. A leper was excluded from their family, from worship. They weren't allowed to come to the temple. They were isolated, alone, untouchable. 
They weren't allowed to come in the limits of the city. Here we are in Matthew chapter 8, right after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been talking about his authority. And he's now saying, not only do I speak as one with authority, but now you're going to see in action what this looks like. He's coming off the mountain. We're not sure how many people are around him, but great crowds are gathered. And you can almost imagine, as a leper comes there, the people are going to fan out and spread out and get out of the way of this leper. He knows he's wretched, he's miserable, and he's also fearless and urgent. He's humble, he's pleading for his life, he comes in faith, he's not presumptuous. He knows who Jesus is. He knows Christ can cleanse him. And we're not sure how he heard that, but he did. Word has been spreading. Jesus has been preaching. One of those sermons in Luke 4 talked of lepers, mentioning Naaman who was cleansed and how Jesus would continue to cleanse and heal people, but not in Nazareth, he said, not in his hometown. As this man comes to Jesus, it's a picture of how a sinner comes to Christ today. An overwhelming sense of his need. He is crying out for grace. He has no hope in himself, and the same is true for us. His leprosy illustrates something else as well. He would have ugly pockets in his face, clawed out limbs, open sores, completely isolated. And it's a picture of our sin. We are spiritual lepers, all of us, until we are healed by the gospel. That's not how God made Adam and Eve. Before the fall, things were not supposed to be like this. But sin makes us all unclean. It's a living death. It's our condition since the fall of Adam. And apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins and trespasses, like this leper walking around. Sin is incurable from a human perspective. And until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, we won't think that we are the walking dead. We need the Spirit to convict us of sin. That we see the holiness of God, the justice of his law, our need for a Savior. The leper's coming, and what does Jesus do? In some ways, the unthinkable, as you look at the passage. He stretches out his hand, and if you're an Old Testament Jew, you're thinking, Jesus, you don't want to do that. Jesus, if you touch him, you are going to become unclean, physically and spiritually. There was a connection that they saw. Jesus, you can't do that. You're going to catch it. And Jesus reaches out his hand to touch him. That point should not be lost on us. He could have spoken and stayed at a distance and healed him. He is God. He spoke the world into existence by his word. Kids, he touched him. Why? Mark's gospel tells us out of the abundance of his compassion, out of his love for this man, 
This man that perhaps has not been touched or hugged by people for who knows how long. He's moved with compassion, Mark 1.41. The Son of God became man to reach out to us. This is his humanity, his compassion. The leper himself says, if you will, you can make me clean, verse 2. And Jesus says, I want to be clean. And for the first time in history, when something unclean touches something clean, that person doesn't get unclean. Imagine just a muddy hand or a slimy hand filled with northern slime kids. You caught a fish and your hand's all slimy and you reach out and touch someone. Now they've got northern slime and it's all over and it's gross. But not this time. The cleanness of Jesus heals the uncleanness of the leper. And immediately, it says, the leprosy left him. He restores him from his walking death. Jesus gives him his life back, the sovereign healing power of God. And if you're here and you're not a believer this morning, hear what God says to you in his word. This is the authority of God's word. This is the authority and compassion of God in the flesh. This is a miracle that only God could do. The Son of God has the power to heal. We also see in this passage an illustration of the spiritual cleansing Jesus provides us. Not only does leprosy show our sin, in a sense, as an illustration, but it shows how Jesus saves sinners. This man was not able to be healed by the law. Meaning, the priest could diagnose his condition, but they couldn't cause healing to happen. And so it is with us in the law of God. We need the gospel. We need Christ to come and say to us, everything that's yours, your sin, all that has distorted you and rendered you unclean, I'm taking it on myself. And I'm giving you my perfect righteousness. Jesus took away the man's disease and gave him healthy skin. So he takes away the sin of every believing sinner and imputes to us his saving righteousness. That man that day had skin that all of a sudden was now perfectly cleansed. His teeth that were ground down to nothing are now working teeth. His heart, his kidneys, his lungs... Every part of his body was cleansed. And so it is with us. Jesus comes to save you body and soul in life and in death. And he shows how his kingdom comes. He touches the leper. He says, I am prepared to become like you, a man under judgment. So you can become free and forgiven and righteous by faith in me. He carries your sorrow, Emmaus. He takes your shame. He bears your burden. He tastes your death. He raises you from the dead. Only the gospel can do that. This man comes desperate. He comes urgent. And he comes in faith. He needs a double cure. Cleansed from the sin and guilt and the penalty and the pollution. And now he's not only forgiven, but he's 
by the grace of God, put back in the community of people that he was once isolated from. And that's what sin does to all of us. We're isolated in it, aren't we? The Proverbs talk of the danger of one isolating himself. But Jesus says, go back. I'm restoring your relationship with God and with the people of God. But don't tell anyone. Do you notice how he says that? Isn't that strange? He's saying that because he doesn't want people to misunderstand who he is. He's not a walking McDonald's that's just going to kind of produce food or a walking hospital that is just going to kind of magically touch everyone and heal everyone and make them better. No. The miracles are about the kingdom of God coming. They're a picture of the age to come. They're a reminder of what will be one day in heaven. So he doesn't want people to be confused as to who he is. He's here to do miracles, but not in the way people often watch. So he says, don't tell anyone, but go. Back to the priest. Go and do what the law says. Isn't that interesting? Sinclair Ferguson talks about this. The law couldn't save him. Christ does. But now that he is saved, go and out of gratitude and thankfulness to God, enjoy the law as a freedom. Not to bondage us, not to condemn us, but as a guide in gratitude is something we delight in because we're in Christ. It's an interesting illustration of the law and gospel. Now go and say, I want to live to God's glory. There'd be a lot he would have to do here. You've got to go back to the priest. He has to say that you're clear and you're clean and you're ready to be in society again. And that didn't happen very much. Most of the time, lepers didn't get better. Bring an offering of two birds. Kill one of them, Leviticus 13 and 14. Dip one in blood. Release it. Sprinkle the blood on your head seven times. Shave your head. Shave your eyebrows. Spend eight days making sacrifices. I mean, this is massive. And it shows the deep problem of sin and our need for deep cleansing that only Jesus can provide. Do all that, and then Jesus says that it might be a testimony or proof, do you see that in verse 4? To them. Who are the them? The priests. The ones who are the public health inspectors. The ones he has to go to. So that they, who many of them didn't believe in Christ, would now know Jesus is no ordinary man. He's no ordinary prophet. He is God in the flesh. That they would know of Jesus' divine power and love for sinners. Jesus, a man with authority and compassion. Secondly, he moves on to meet a man with a servant. We see his compassion again. So here is Jesus having just healed the leper. And this entire section of Matthew is going to be filled with these kinds of amazing healings. Now he's going to Capernaum. There's a crowd there and there's a centurion. You'll notice that in verse 5. This is a man of prominence. The word centurion means, kids you probably know, century, right? So he commanded a hundred soldiers. He's like a marine. He's in charge. These soldiers do what he says. He has authority, this man. That's important here. And he has a servant. In this day, a centurion would not be allowed to be married. 
because sometimes they would spend 20 years at the far reaches of the Roman Empire and their family, if they had one, would be nowhere near them. That's important because the servant, from the text here as well as in Luke's gospel, is very dear to this man. He loves this servant. He treats him kindly, and we'll see as well, he has a very good reputation in the community. This servant is sick. He's paralyzed. We're not sure if he's a quadriplegic, paraplegic, or a temporary paralysis, but we know it's dire, and he's suffering great pain, and most likely nearing death. We don't know how soon, but this is not just a minor take some Advil kind of thing. This is serious. This man is helpless. He knows he can't fix the problem, but he knows someone who perhaps can. And this is a spiritual lesson for us as well. How many times are we in situations we can't fix it, and sometimes we try to fix it, and we force it, and it gets worse? And instead of crying out to God for help, we try the the do-it-ourself mentality. Just push on, and you'll, you'll do better, and it'll get better. Well, Medically, perhaps, you're in a situation like this. Financially, relationally. A family member, perhaps, who's walked away from Jesus. You and I are not the Holy Spirit in their life or our own life. We can pray for them, we can love them, we can be patient with them, but we can't fix it. This centurion, like the leper, also heard of Jesus somehow. We're not sure how. But Luke's gospel gives us an important detail that Matthew doesn't. Not that they're contradictory, they're complementary, the Gospels. They're each giving you an eyewitness account of the historical reality of Christ in the flesh. In Luke's Gospel, the centurion wants to send some elders of the Jews to Jesus. Interesting. For us, that might not mean much, but in that day, Jews and Gentiles had a massive hatred for one another. It was as deep as anything or deeper than anything we can even imagine. And as one pastor says, this proves the Bible is true. Because there's no way the Bible would say this unless this is really happening. An eyewitness account of a centurion sending Jewish elders, and he has a good reputation with them, and they go and they say in Luke's gospel, this guy, this centurion, is worthy to have you, Jesus Heal his servant. It's really important to bring that out, I think, because of what we're going to see next. He's worthy. Let that sink in a bit. Luke's gospel goes on. He loves our nation. He built our synagogue. The synagogue that this man built is still there in Capernaum. You can still see it today. He is what the Bible teaches elsewhere, a God-fearer. Like Acts 10, Cornelius. By the grace of God, he's turned from whatever pagan idolatry he once worshipped to worship God, the living, true God. He's generous. He gives without knowing that he'll get paid back. That's the kind of guy this is. He is worthy. What Luke brings out about that passage is the absolute 
foundation system of the Pharisee. God is pleased with me because of my performance. I am worthy. I am good, so I should get this stuff. Because of all he's done for the Jews, that's why, Jesus, you should heal his servants. Those bad guys over there, they're not worthy. Go get them, but praise and reward this guy. That is the religion of the natural man. It's how we're all born. We're all wired to think this way. Think of our own minds and our heads. When we have an argument with someone in our minds, we never lose it, do we? Because we always have the right answers, and we come up with the perfect defense, and we know they're going to be convinced by it. Right? Because we're wired for self-righteousness. It's sin. It's how we're born. It's our condition. Keep that in your mind as you see what he says. Jesus goes, verse 6. You know what? I'm going to go to his house. Jesus always surprises you in a good way. Amazing again. Why? Because a Jew wouldn't go to a Gentile's house. If he went, he would be ceremonially unclean. He's headed right there. Which is exactly what Isaiah chapter 12 are called to worship. And Isaiah 56 say, the nations are going to come to worship God. Christ came for the nations. It's what he promised in Genesis 12 to Abraham. I will bless you, Abraham, and through you all the nations will be blessed. Psalm 97, rejoice, you islands. The far-off coastlands, they will come and worship the Lord. And here is a taste of that right here. At Pentecost, we see it. People gather from all nations. Isaiah 25, Jesus will remove the darkness that covers the nations. We as a church exist to worship God and to bring his gospel to the nations around the world in our, in our neighborhoods, knowing that Jesus has authority, that he will save a people for himself, that he's already bought them with his blood, that he's already paid for them. He's given them eternal life. The Father gave these people to him. He will build his church. Emmaus Road, by God's grace, we Bring this gospel to a people that Jesus has won, that we pray will repent and believe in Christ and join with the worshipers of God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. There's a lot going on here. The centurion, Luke's gospel tells us, wasn't pleased with that message the elders brought. Remember what they said? Jesus, this centurion is worthy. He didn't like that. So he sends some friends back to Jesus, Luke 7. He tells them, report to Jesus these words. Do not trouble yourself, Luke 7, meaning to be extremely agitated. Don't dare come near me, he's saying. I will be in extreme agitation to your holiness. That's the literal phrase in Luke 7. The friends bring his message. Tell Jesus, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. What do the elders say, kids? He's worthy. The centurion says, no, I'm a sinner. I don't come as one who is worthy. I come as one who needs grace, who needs cleansing. When grace and the mercy of God settles into our hearts, we also say, who among us is worthy 
to have Christ come under our roof. Do you remember the Andrew Peterson song, Revelation 5, right out of the text? Is he worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seal? The elder wept in Revelation because no one was found who was worthy. But then he said, there is one, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Savior of sinners. He alone is worthy. He goes to a cross to pay the debt of my sin. Who among us is worthy? His perfect righteousness is mine by faith. Who is worthy? It's all by grace. We have all turned aside to our own way. Like sheep, we've gone astray, but Christ, the shepherd of the sheep, has laid down his life for us all. The centurion goes on. I understand, back in Matthew 8, verse 8, I understand authority. Remember, he's a commander of 100 men. He answers to other centurions, probably 60 of them. And they all answer to the emperor. So he's saying, we've got an emperor and generals, and if the guy tells me to go, I go, and if I tell this guy to go, he goes. We get that. We are men of authority. Why is he saying this? Because he recognizes Jesus' authority. Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's right out of Daniel 7, where the son of Man in the ancient of days, we see a picture of this. The Father gives a people to the Son. He gives all authority to the Son. He's that one, Jesus says. I'm that one, meaning I'm, I'm that one. Christ has all authority in his Bible. His word is the authoritative word of God. As you read it, this is God speaking to you, loved ones. That's why we pray for the Holy Spirit that As we read the word, we would see this is Christ himself speaking to his church. In Matthew 8, verse 10, Jesus responds to the centurion. This man, Jesus says, is remarkable. This is a remarkable verse. Jesus is amazed at the faith of the centurion. There's only two places in the New Testament, one man says, where Jesus is amazed. Right here, and in Mark 6, where Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. He is unable to do miracles there. He is amazed at their lack of faith. This time he's amazed at this man's faith. Not that his faith saves him. Christ saves him through faith. But this man knew who Jesus was. He believed. He trusted in this Savior to save this servant. He he was a worshiper of the living God. And do you see what Jesus says next? This Gentile from among the nations worships me. But there are many, he says, Many, yes, who worship me from all these east and west tribes who will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Weeping and gnashing of teeth will be there. Beloved, Satan wants you to think hell doesn't exist. 
Jesus is very clear there is a hell. He speaks of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. The compassionate, merciful Savior. He is powerful, and he is the judge before whom we all must appear, 2 Corinthians. Hell is a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God, a prison, a place of torment where the worm doesn't turn or die. That's from R.C. Sproul. That's summarizing just a bunch of passages. It's terror upon terror. And it's something that we can't speak of without great anguish in our hearts, knowing that's what we deserve. Knowing that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Knowing that God is just. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. Hell is an eternity, not in the absence of God but before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, suffering torment from which there is no escape and no relief. Beloved, this is the word of God. Understanding this is crucial to our drive to appreciate Christ, his gospel, and to proclaim it and to tell good news that is for all the people, that we deserve hell, but we are called upon now by God's grace to trust in Jesus by faith and repentance to turn from our own way by the kindness of God to trust in the living God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hell is what we deserve. Hell is what Jesus suffered for every one of his people. Do you remember a few weeks ago in Romans 8? Who has authority to issue a charge that will stand against God's elect? Remember the answer? No one. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who intercedes for us at the right hand of God, who is returning in glory. If you are here today and don't know Christ, come and talk to one of us afterwards. Or, by the grace of God, put your faith in Jesus. Come to him by faith, knowing that he is compassionate, that he is authoritative, that he is merciful, that his compassion delivers us from our sin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.